Now, if you have a Bible with you and want to open to Numbers 13, that's where we're going to be this morning. Numbers chapter 13 as we continue our teaching series called Overcoming Obstacles. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll know that we've been tracking with the story of the exodus from Egypt. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They call out to their God who reaches out with his mighty hand and saves them. They cross through the Red Sea, through the desert, and we'll pick up the story today as they are on the brink of the promised land, about to enter into the land that God promised to them. Now, as I was thinking about the story that we're going to look at today in Numbers 13, and as you turn there, I was thinking about how wonderful today actually is for me. I woke up so excited for today because today I get to do my two favorite things. In the morning, I get to stand up and preach the word of God. And then slightly less importantly, this afternoon, I get to sit down and watch my beloved San Francisco 49ers win the Super Bowl. Now, um, if you have objections to what I've said and are rooting for the Chiefs, we can still be friends tomorrow. Um, and so, uh, but, but, but really, this is, this is what I've been thinking about. Like thinking about this game, I'm excited for the game. And then I've been thinking actually in the last couple of weeks, it occurred to me for the first time, uh, I've been a 49ers fan for years and years and years, my entire life. But it occurred to me just a couple of weeks ago that being a 49ers fan is probably costing me years off my life. And, and, and here's when I recognize that. I recognized that two weeks ago in the NFC Championship game. Now, if you don't know football, this is the game you have to win to get into the Super Bowl. I'm watching the game. It's the 49ers versus the Detroit Lions. The 49ers are favored to win, but at halftime, they're losing by 17 points. And so I considered switching to a different sport or caring about a different thing. At one point, I considered a vow of silence for a year to mourn, but that doesn't work with my job. But, but then here's what began to happen. The 49ers made an unprecedented comeback in the second half, a 17-point deficit They come back to win the game. And what I noticed was happening was I wasn't just being excited. Something was happening inside of my body. And here's how I want to describe it for you. So I have a watch on my wrist like many of you, and this watch tells me a number of things. I don't know how accurate it is, but it tells me some information about myself. On a given day, it gives me my resting heart rate. I'll show you my resting heart rate the other day here, 52. It's somewhere between 50 and 60 on a regular basis. Now I'm watching this game. It's halftime. They're down 17. I'm pretty discouraged. But then they begin to make the comeback and they score at one point the tying touchdown. It is just me and my brother sitting there watching the game together. I look down at my watch, noticing that my heart rate is up. And here is my heart rate in the middle of this game. 125. So... It's literally my watch screaming at me like something is wrong, seek medical attention, right? And I start to think about that and I go 125 and here's what you know and I know that you don't have to be a doctor to know this, that that's not dangerous in and of itself. Like in that moment, it spiked way up high, but if it goes back down, that's not a problem. What would become a problem is if it went to 125 two weeks ago and never went back down, right? That would become a serious medical emergency in my life and in yours, and I was thinking about that reality today, thinking about where we're going in the text this morning. And here's two observations I want to make, one about my heart rate and one about where we're going. The first is this, that chronically elevated heart rate will eventually negatively impact your physical health, right? That's an undisputed fact. If your heart rate spikes up, comes back down, not a huge deal. If it spikes up and does not come back down, you need to call a doctor. Chronically elevated heart rate will impact your physical health. And this morning, we're going to look at a story where the people of God don't have a chronically elevated heart rate. They have a chronically elevated fear. And what I want to point out to you as we begin this morning is that chronically elevated fear will negatively impact your spiritual health. That it will impact your walk with God. It will impact your faith. If your fear and anxiety and worry about this world stays high, 
It will impact you. Now, again, I think the heart rate is the perfect thing to analogize toward fear. When it comes to fear, I think it's okay to have moments where we feel afraid and then it comes back down. Moments where our child is playing on the playground and they slip and fall and we reach out to them and our fear goes up and comes back down. The problem isn't that we fear, feel, feel fear occasionally. The problem is that our fear stays elevated. We're constantly fearful, constantly anxious, constantly worried and concerned about the world, about our lives, about our businesses, our employment, the economy, the future of this nation, or simply the future of our families. See, the problem in your life and mine is not that we're occasionally afraid. The problem is when that fear stays elevated, it begins to negatively impact our walk with Jesus, our spiritual health, and the future God has for us. So I want you to see this story this morning in Numbers chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 1 if you have a Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. It says in Numbers 13, 1, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So the whole story begins with the Lord Yahweh speaking to Moses. He's the God who is and the God who speaks, and he has something to say to Moses. And he gives Moses a command. And the command is, send 12 guys in. They're going to go check out the land. We'll refer to them as the 12 spies who go into the promised land to look at what God has promised to them. But then I think the key to this entire story we'll look at this morning is in the second verse. And if you skip past it, you won't actually understand the spiritual gravity of this entire story. You notice on the screen, it says that God is this land. He's looking at this land of Canaan, which he is giving to the Israelites. He's giving it to them. He tells them, I'm giving it to you. He doesn't say, go ahead and try your best. He doesn't say, just give it a swing and see what happens. He makes a promise. And that promise is, I am giving you this land. The entire story hinges on this promise and whether or not the Israelites will know, remember, and believe this promise as we think about fear in our own lives, as we think about the things that make you anxious today and this week and next week, the things that have you worried and concerned about your family and your health and your life, I want to begin with this simple question of many I'll ask this morning, and it's this simple one. Do you know what the Lord promised to you in the Bible? See, the promise given to the Israelites is, I am giving you this land. He doesn't say, I might, or I'll think about it, or I'll consider. He makes a promise, and our God is a promise maker, and a promise keeper. He tells the Israelites, I'm giving to you to this land. Do you know the promises the Lord gave to you? Do you know that the Lord promises I will never leave nor forsake you? Do you know that he promises that he will hear you when you cry out to him in prayer? Do you know that the Lord promises that he will forgive your sins, taking them as far as the east is from the west? Do you know that the Lord promised to provide for your needs to take care of you? Do you know what the Lord promised to you in scripture? And my concern for many Christians is they know many things about God, but they don't know what he promised to them. If you haven't done this in a while, I would encourage you to open up your Bible, to work through it maybe with a different colored highlighter, to highlight every promise you can find in the Bible, to identify the things that God has promised to his people that he has promised to you. If you're not even sure where to start highlighting or looking for promises of God in the scripture, I've got a great website for you. You can write it down. It's G-O-O-G-L-E dot com. You go to the Google and you go promises of God and there will be hundreds of them. You can print them out. You can memorize one a day. You can know this. You can know everything about what God promised to you. It's right at our fingertips. There's no reason for us not to know what the promises of God are in the scripture. See, the first question I want to ask in the midst of the fear, the anxiety and the worry of your life is, do you know what the Lord promised to you in the Bible? 
And then my second question would be the opposite of this. Do you know what the Lord never promised you in the Bible? So here's what I want to identify. The Lord says here in the text, I am giving this land to you. I'm going to give it to you. It's a promise. But I want you to notice he never says it's going to be easy. He never says it's going to be fast. He never says it's going to be simple. He never said it's going to be painless. He promises them the land, but he doesn't promise it's going to be easy. And in the same way, God promises us many things in the Bible. And yet it's important for us to know what God didn't promise us. Do you know that God never made a promise? He never promised you that you would never get sick, that you would never deal with physical health issues. Do you know that God never promised that you would be wealthy and never have to worry about money and never have to change your lifestyle once or never lose your job or your home? He never made that promise to you. If you're married, do you know that God never promised your marriage would be without problems? If you have children, do you know that God never promised your kids or your grandkids would behave perfectly? See, sometimes what we do is we make up promises that God never actually gave. And then we're resentful and bitter that God did not deliver on promises that he never made. And so it's as important it is for us to know the promises of God in the Bible. It's important to also know what God didn't promise us. God promised the Israelites the land, but he did not promise it would be easy or quick or simple or painless. See, that's what we need in these moments of fear, in these moments of anxiety in our lives. We need to know what God said and what he didn't say. I say it this way, in the moments of fear, we need verses, not vague ideas. And far too many Christians live off the fumes of vague ideas. They have thoughts about God and how he loves them and these ideas out there, but they don't actually have any verses to back it up. And so in these vague ideas, they sort of hope they kind of know what God thinks about things rather than actually going to the text, going to the word, and knowing what God has to say to them. I want us to be a church that knows verses, that knows what God actually promised to us in the scripture, not just vague ideas. Because in the midst of fear, there's nothing more important than knowing what God promised. So what happens is he'll send them into the land. He gives them instructions in the next verses. They select the individuals who will go in. And we'll pick up here in verse 25, if you're following along. It says at the end of 40 days, they return from exploring the land. The spies go in for 40 days. They check out the land. They investigate and they come back with a report. And we're about to see their report to the people of Israel. We're about to see what they have to say to the assembly. And what's wonderful about this story is the story is not just a good, true story that we kind of smile at and go, yes, what a great story. It's actually put in place to teach us something. See, I think it's important in the midst of a series like this where we're following the story of the people of God in Exodus, the nation of Israel, to remember the purpose of those stories in the Old Testament. And do you know that the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us the purpose of these stories. In Romans 15, verse 4, Paul says, In everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that we might have the endurance taught from the scriptures and the encouragement they provide that we might have hope. Like I want you to observe here that Paul says, Everything written in the past, which for Paul in the time of the New Testament would be the 39 books of the Old Testament, they were written for four reasons. Number one, to teach us something. Number two, to give us endurance. Number three, to give us encouragement. And number four, to give us hope. And those are four things I hope this story teaches you this morning. I hope this story from Numbers 13 and 14 gives you something this morning. And that would be that it would teach you something. That it would help give you endurance, encouragement, and ultimately, that it would fill you with hope. Verse 26 says these words. It says, they, this is the 12 spies, come back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. They reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. They went to the land which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. 
So they come back and they're excited. They gather everyone in the assembly together and they go, listen, everyone, we went into the land and it's amazing. It's better than we thought it would be. And then they use this strange phrase. They said it is flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you grew up in church, you've heard the promised land referred to as the place flowing with milk and honey before. But if you're new or newer to church, that might sound strange. And if you're honest with yourselves, it's strange outside of the Bible's context. If I told you there's a new restaurant on, on Teal Boulevard and I just went, it was an amazing place. My plate was flowing with milk and honey. You'd be very confused. But this is a Hebrew idiom that is meant to say it is a lush place, it is a fertile place, it is a great place for us to build houses and raise families and plant down and build roots and live our lives and raise up the next generation. It is a place flowing with milk and honey. In simplified ways, it is a place that is good. It is a good land. It is a good place. And the Israelites would have known this because they would have known that this was not just random. They didn't randomly stumble upon the promised land. This was a land that God promised to them all the way back at their father, Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 17, 8, you'll see it on the screen. It says the whole land of Canaan. This is God speaking to Abraham, where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Here's the people of God standing on the bank of the river, looking into the promised land. And they are not there randomly. They did not get there accidentally. They got there because for the last 600 years, God had been conspiring behind the scenes to bring them to a good place flowing with milk and honey. God had been organizing and orchestrating all of human history to bless his people with a good promised land. It's like this. My wife loves surprises. She, she loves when I give her a gift for Christmas or her birthday, and she loves the gift, but what she loves more is the thought that I was spending all this time in secret, working on something for her without her even knowing. The part of the blessing is the gift, yeah, but part of the blessing is the surprise, all the work, all the effort that came into it. The same thing is happening here with the Israelites. They're recognizing that God has orchestrated all of human history to bring them to this point, where they get to go into this promised land, this good land, filled with milk and honey. See, I think the thing God wants to prove with this land is simply this, that God is good. The land is his ability to say, look, I am good. I am a gracious God. I led you to this place. And here's why this is so important for us this morning. When you are in the midst of anxiety, when fear is taking over, when you're worried about something and anxious about what comes next, the fundamental question for you is not the facts of your situation. It is a different question, and the question is simply this. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe he's good? Because once I believe God is good, and that's the foundation I stand on, the world may seem chaotic. My life may seem scary. There may be anxiety in my future, but if God is good, he's going to take me through it. If God is good, he's going to walk with me through it, and I have nothing to fear. If God is good, I can trust him through it. And here's my fear for so many, so many outside of the church and maybe even so many inside the church. My fear is so many people who call themselves Christians don't actually believe God is good. You have a mental picture in your mind of a God who is angry, bitter, and mad at you all the time. It's like this. I mentioned I've been a 49er fan since I was a kid. And growing up, my, my parents had season tickets to the 49ers games at Candlestick Park. And so as a kid, I would get to go. In fact, my best Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays ever as a kid is when I, I would play football for the high school on Friday night. My parents both went to Cal Berkeley. We would go to Cal football games on Saturday and then a 49er game on Sunday. The trifecta, the holy grail. 
So occasionally we go to the games and we get out to the games and you know, you go to the place where your season tickets are. And when you have season tickets, it's not just kind of different people each time. It's some of the same people every time. And some of them were pleasant and some of them were less than pleasant. And so behind me and two seats to the left, I'll never forget, there was a guy who would sit there. And what would happen is every time the 49ers would score or something good would happen, me and my brothers, we would stand to our feet and we would cheer. And then we would hear the voice from behind us. And this voice is just like locked into my brain. How he said it and the words he said, I'll never forget it. The voice would always say as we would stand up, he would go down in front. (gasps) And we would be terrified. And so we'd stand up again and he'd shout down in front. And so eventually the Niners would do something good and I would only sort of stand. I would go, (gasps) because I was scared. It was a voice behind me who every time I stood up, he'd scream at me. And I didn't want to experience that again. And so I started reacting. And you know what the tragedy is? I think millions of people see God that way. They think God is the angry old man who's screaming over their shoulder, just waiting for them to do something wrong. But I want you to know if that's the way you see God, that is not the God presented in the Bible. The God presented in the Bible is kind and compassionate, gracious and good. The God presented in the Bible is not the old angry man in the sky who just wants to tear you down and be mad at you. The God described in the Bible by these same Israelites who are about to go into the promised land in Psalm 34 is this God who says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God taught to us in scripture. It is a God who is good. And in the midst of your worry, in the midst of your concern, in the midst of your stress and anxiety, in the midst of whatever is going on, the firm foundation you can stand upon is that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good because that is his nature. In verse 28, it goes on this way. It says, but the people who live there, they're reporting still. The people who live there are powerful. And their cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites and the Negev and the the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites uh, live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live in the sea along the Jordan. So they describe how good and wonderful the land is. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's a wonderful place to live. And then they go on to describe who's living there. And to my knowledge in this text, they're not saying anything untrue. There's gonna come a point in time where we see their fear, their anxiety and their worry take over and their faith collapses in on them. But I don't believe that's happened yet. They're simply making observations and here's the observations. There's powerful fortified cities. You've got descendants of Anak who are these giants, these giant human beings. And then you've got all the ites, right? The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jezebites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. They're all living in the land. And my observation is this that there is no problem with the people of God identifying true and real problems that are out there. See, I don't want you to misunderstand this sermon even for a moment. I don't want you to misunderstand me to say there's nothing scary out there. No one will ever hurt you. No one's against you. There's nothing to fear in our life or in our nation or in your health or in your business or in the economy. I'm not here to say there's nothing scary out there. The Bible never calls us to be the type of people who deny the real threats that exist in this world the real things out there that can frighten and scare us. The Bible never tells us to never look out in the world and see scary things. Like I said at the beginning, I'm convinced that it is healthy and normal that sometimes our fear will spike up and then come back down. And if that's the case, then the question is not, will I I never be afraid? How will I never be afraid? That's not the question. The question is not, how do I make sure I'm never afraid, never feel fear, never have a moment where I'm afraid? The question is not, will I ever be afraid? The question is, What will I do with my fear? When I feel it, when it's bubbling up inside me, what will I do with my fear? 
That is the fundamental question for you. When there are layoffs at work and other people are getting laid off and you're worried it might be you next and your fear is rising. Well, when your child or grandchild has walked away from the Lord and is making destructive decisions that break your heart and you're worried it's going to go on forever, what do you do with it? When you've got a call from your doctor and he says it doesn't look good and you start to go down that road, what do you do with that fear? And this morning I want to offer you three things. Three things that the people of God do with their fear, their anxiety, their worry, and their concern. Number one, we notice it. You notice it. Will you notice what's going on in your body? That your chest is getting tight, that your breath is getting short, that you feel like you're constricting. Some people have told me it feels like I'm getting headaches, like I can tell there's something going on in my body. You notice that the fear is there. You don't bury it or pretend it's not there or turn on music or the TV to push it out of the way. You notice it. The next thing you do is you name it. Naming things brings order and clarity to our lives. When you feel fear and you say, you know what, I'm afraid I'm going to get laid off at work. I'm afraid that my finances are gonna collapse. I'm afraid that my business isn't gonna make it. I'm afraid that this health diagnosis that I just got is going to be terrible for me. I'm afraid for my child and what they're experiencing at school. You name it, you put words to it because naming things brings order and clarity to our lives. You notice it, you name it, and then you bring it to God. God, I'm worried about what's going on at work. I need your help here. God, I'm worried about that diagnosis. I need you to give me strength and peace. God, I'm worried about my grandchild. I know what she's gotten into. And God, I need you to bring her back to the Lord. You notice it, you name it, and you bring it to God. See, the opposite of that is you just not even noticing it. You not naming it, you not bringing it to God. You just burying it because you're uncomfortable with the fear. It's like this, I was listening to a podcast recently. And a guy was talking about needing some help because he had $100,000 in credit card debt. $100,000. And the host of the podcast goes, how in the world? What did you spend $100,000 on? The guy says, I didn't. He goes, it was much more like eight, dollars $10,000. And I started to see that number and it scared me. So I just stopped logging onto the account. And every time they sent me mail that I had to pay the bill, I just threw it in the trash. And years and years and years and years went by and now it's $100,000. What do I do? And I don't have a great answer for what that guy does. But I do know that if he had addressed it when it was small, if he had noticed it and named it and dealt with it, then it wouldn't have grown to 100,000. And the same is true with the fear in your life. Oftentimes there are small things, little things, that we choose not to notice, that we choose to push down, that we choose to drown out with the noise of this world. But what we're called to do is not to ignore or push away, but to notice it, name it, and bring it to God. See, when we do what that guy did with his credit card bill, we allow things to get much bigger. I've said before, I'll say again, that what you do not identify will only intensify. Meaning if I don't identify it, if I don't notice it and name it, if I don't call it for what it is, it's only going to get worse in my life. If you're having problems with your kids or problems in your marriage, problems in your health or in your spiritual walk, you've got to notice it. You've got to name it and bring it to God. Why? Because once you say it, you can start to solve it. Once you say it out loud, call it for what it is identify the problem in your life. Now you can start to solve it. The problem for the people of Israel here is not that they noticed there's giants in the land. It's not that they noticed how strong they were. The problem is going to come later, but identifying it for what it is, is a healthy part of dealing with our fear. Verse 30 goes on to say this, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses. He said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. 12 spies go into the land. 10 of them come back and say, I don't think we can do this. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, say we can certainly do it. Now there's nothing in the text that identifies Caleb, though. The reason is because he's a warrior. He's stronger. He's better in battle. 
It doesn't say that he's even naturally braver or that he's reckless and that's why he wants to go in. See, what I'm convinced is true for Caleb is something that can actually be true for every single person on this room or watching online. And that's that Caleb remembers four things. They're the four things you can remember in the midst of fear. The next time you're anxious about your future or worried about your children or grandchildren, concerned about your business or the economy, remember four things like Caleb. Number one, Caleb remembers God's promise. He remembers that God promised to give them the land. He didn't suggest it to them. He promised it to them. Number two, Caleb remembers God's power. He remembers Egypt. He remembers the plagues. He remembers that the great superpower of the world in Egypt collapsed under the might of God's mighty right hand. Caleb remembers God's presence. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. He remembers that God has gone with them this far. And Caleb remembers God's past. He remembers that God has taken them this far and he's not going to start failing now. See, what Caleb does is he remembers. And I want you to know that remembering is a powerful antidote to fear. It's a powerful counter to the fear in your life. Remembering allows us to look back on God's power, his presence, his purposes and promise and past in our life and allows us to move forward. It's like this from time to time here at Calvary, we're dealing with a complicated issue whether it be with people or with programs or our building or our budget or staff or anything like that. And sometimes we're in a room and we're trying to work through it. And then someone will speak up like Pastor Sean or someone on our senior leadership. And they'll say, you know what? We've actually been in this type of scenario before. We've seen this before. God took us through it before. He's gonna take us through it again. Do you know how liberating that is in the room? Fear just dissipates in that moment. Because if God brought us out of this before, there's no reason to believe he won't do it again. And the same is true for your life. In your life, there are circumstances, there are issues going on that no doubt have you afraid, anxious, or worried. But God has acted before, and God will act again. And when, like Caleb, we remember God's promise, his power, his presence, and his past, we can walk with confidence into what others fear. Verse 31 goes on this way. It says, but the men who had gone up with him, says we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. We, we can't do this. And I want to notice two things that are highlighted up here on the screen. The two phrases I want you to contrast here. Number one are the words, they are. They are stronger than us. And number two are the words, we can't. We can't attack those people. And this morning, I want you to notice the contrast between they are and we can't. Because there is a distinction here. The phrase, they are stronger than us, is a statement of fact it is true. They have big armies and fortified cities. They are locked in. They are stronger than us. But then the phrase, we can't, is not a fact. It is a fear that they cannot succeed against them. One is a fact. One is a fear. And if we want to move through the anxiety and worry and concern we have in this life, we must learn to distinguish between facts and fears. Listen, when we are anxious, we must distinguish between facts and fears. We have to learn to do that. We have to learn to say, here's what the facts are and here's what the fears are and let me not blend them together. So let's say you have a child or grandchild who's walked away from the Lord. That is painful and that is a deep ache for a dad or a granddad or a mom or a grandma. And yet at the same time, this truth that they have walked away from the Lord, they've made certain decisions, the fear is they'll never come back to Jesus. It's always gonna be this way. We have to learn to distinguish one as a fact and one as a fear that is not true. It has not yet come true. And we don't have to make our fears into facts. 
Same goes if you're having layoffs at your business. People have been laid off or the business is shaky. You're not sure how it's going to go. That may be a fact and it may be true. But the fear is, I'm next. Everything's going to collapse. We're going to lose everything as a family. That might be the case, but it's not yet a fact. And we have to distinguish between facts and fears. If you're a married couple in the room and you've been having challenges, you've been fighting, it's been a difficult season. That might be a fact that marriage has been hard recently. But you know what the fear that pops into your mind is? It's always going to be this way. It's never going to get better. I might as well give up. That's a fear, not a fact. You have to learn to distinguish between the fears and the facts. See, that's what they fail to do here. They look at these cities and go, they're stronger than we are. So we can't attack them. One is a fear and one is a fact. And listen, we do have to make peace with the facts in our lives. There may be truths about your finances or your health or your future or your children that you need to make peace with but we do not have to make peace with the fears in our hearts. The fears, the worst case scenarios that we stir up in our heart and our mind, we do not have to make peace with those because those have not yet happened. And we need to factor in the truth of our God who works in the midst of it. Verse 32 says this, and they, this is the 10 spies who say we can't go in. They spread a negative or spread, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And, when we, and we looked the same to them. So they give this report and they start spreading it among themselves. And it's amazing how much negativity and cynicism can spread. If you've ever worked anywhere and someone gets sour, it's amazing how quickly they start to make that sourness and that negativity and the cynicism spread. And the cynicism starts to spread and you'll see what they say. The land devours people. We have no chance. And then you'll notice that curious little phrase. It says, we seemed like grasshoppers in whose eyes? In our own eyes. In our own eyes. You'll notice in this little speech they gave, they left someone out of their analysis. Their computation of their chances of winning this battle against the people in the land. They left someone out entirely and the individual they left out was God. They left God out of their analysis completely. Now, I don't believe that's because the Israelites all in that moment suddenly became atheists. They didn't suddenly abandon their belief in God. It's not that they didn't believe God exists. It's that they believe God was irrelevant when it came to their problem. And I wish I could tell you that it's only the Israelites who do that. Because I think for all of us, there have been certain problems, certain areas in our life where we think God is completely irrelevant to us. And we give in to our fear. And I want us to know this this morning that unchecked fear, fear reveals how irrelevant we think our God is. It's not that we become atheists. It's not that we don't believe God is out there. It's just to believe, that we believe when it comes to this particular area of our life, our health, our marriage, our children, our business, our finances, whatever it is, that God is irrelevant when it comes to our fear. Uh, you'll never see this more on display than you will see when you see individuals who are talking about the future of our country. And so you'll see people, even people who call themselves Christians, talking about the future of our country, talking about the presidential election this year, talking about culture, talking about judges and courts and decisions and lawmakers. And here's how they're talking. They're talking in this kind of way, and I could describe it for you, or I could just give you an image from a movie that I think perfectly describes how they talk about the future of our country right here. Chicken Little, save your lives, sky is falling, run, run, run. They look to the future of the country. They say, the sky is falling, run, run, run. Sky is falling, vote, vote, vote. Sky is falling, do, do, do. Sky is falling, give, give, give. Sky is falling, and if this person doesn't get elected, everything is over. And here's what I want you to know, church, on the authority of the word of God. The sky is not 
falling. Jesus Christ sits enthroned in heaven. He is perfectly aware of what is going on. And in our analysis of our country, which has plenty of things I'm concerned about, I am going to include God in that analysis. The same God who raises Jesus from the dead is at work in our country. The same God who put the Holy Spirit of God in each of us is moving throughout our country. And the same God who sits enthroned over all things sits enthroned over our governments as well. And so in every way, I want to be the type of person who says, yes, I have concerns, I see the problems, and yet I'm going to factor God into my analysis. I'm never going to be the type of person who says the sky is falling, because as long as Jesus sits above that sky, it's staying up there. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says this, it says, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, which is God's way of saying this big, hairy problem that you think is the biggest thing in the world, it's tiny to me. It doesn't intimidate me. It doesn't scare me. The mightiest nation on the face of the earth, the United States of America, it is like a drop in the bucket to our God. He is not scared. He is not intimidated. He is not thrown off course. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Numbers chapter 14 and verse one goes on this way. It says that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Then the whole community said to them, if we had only died in Egypt, or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Boy, what a part of the story. It's remarkable. They've just left Egypt with Pharaoh and hundreds of years of slavery. God brings them out. They march all the way to the promised land. They look in and they go, let's go back to slavery. That's what happens. And what happens seems so strange until you understand how fear actually works in our lives. See, a lot of us think fear or anxiety or worry is an emotion. You should just feel it. But that's not what it actually is. See, fear is not just an emotion we feel. It's something that actually dictates and directs and controls our lives. It's like the people of God looked at Pharaoh and they were scared of him. And they looked at the people in the land and they were scared of them. But they were more scared of the people in the land than they were of Pharaoh. So they decided they were going to go back to Pharaoh. See, fear wasn't just something they felt. It was something that controlled them. And what's true for them is true for you as well. See, I want you to know this truth about fear, that whatever you fear most will control you. Whatever you fear more than anything else, it will control you. It's not just a feeling you feel. It actually dictates and directs and controls the direction of your life. It's like this. If I were to bring my wife Danny up on stage and ask her, what are you most afraid of? She would tell you in an instant, snakes. She hates snakes. She wants nothing to do with snakes. Like we live near some wonderful hiking trails. I've said, hey, why don't you come with me? She goes, absolutely not. The snakes will find me. I said, let's do a picnic out in the field. She goes, no, no, no way. The snakes are going to come find me at the picnic. We took our honeymoon in Maui. And the first day I run into the water, I said, are you coming with me? She goes, I will not be going in that water. She said, why not? She said, the sea snakes are out there. The sea snakes? She said, yeah, they're going to come find me. For our first year of marriage, uh, we were in our apartment. And we're just, you know, getting settled in, just married. And one day she comes in. She goes, what have you done? And like every new husband, I went, I have no idea what I've done. What have I done? She goes, you left the sliding glass door open. I said, yeah, it was a hot day. I was trying to get some air in here. She says, you cannot do that. The snakes are going to come into our apartment. <laughs> Church, we lived on the second floor. She goes, it doesn't matter. They'll slither up the pipes. They'll find me. Like for her, snakes are not just a thing she feels about. She like, it controls how she behaves. But the same can be true for anyone else. If you fear heights, you are not going to the observation deck of a, a skyscraper, right? You're not going to go up on top of a huge mountain and look down and think that's cool. 
It's not just a fear, it dictates and controls how you live. The same is true if you're scared of spiders. You're not gonna reach your hand in a cabinet that's full of cobwebs to grab something. You're not gonna lift up a rock and see what's under it. Because whatever we fear most will control us. And it's funny to talk about snakes and spiders and heights, but here's what's not funny to talk about. For some of us, our biggest fear is conflict. So what we fear more than anything else is conflict. And what we do is we do everything in our lives so that we're never in conflict. So we never stand up for ourselves. We never set boundaries. We never advocate for what we actually need because we're so afraid of conflict that we would rather not get what we need than have conflict. For some people, their biggest fear is loneliness. So they would rather stay in dysfunctional, unhealthy relationships than be alone. And they know this relationship's not good for them, but rather than leave and be alone, they would rather be in a bad relationship than none at all. For some people, their greatest fear is criticism. And so they never actually do anything that's worthy of, uh, of the world. They never offer their gifts. They never actually do anything to help or serve because they're so afraid of being criticized. They would rather do nothing than be criticized. See, what happens in all of our lives is fear is not just an emotion we feel. It's something that shapes and directs our lives and how we live. The truth of whatever we fear most will control us is something that is deeply human. And that's why the Bible has this phrase over and over and over again in the Old and New Testament that we are called to fear one thing more than all else, and that is that we are called to fear the Lord. Here's how Proverbs 14, 27 says it. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. In other words, if you want to turn from the destructive things of the world, it begins with you fearing God right. It begins with you fearing God above all else, fearing God above conflict, fearing, fearing God above criticism, fearing God above loneliness, fearing God against the opinions of anyone else in this world. Here's what I found is true in my life, and I think it's true in your life as well. When my fear of God shrinks, my fear of everything else grows. When I find myself not fearing God, not revering him, not fearing him for who he is, my fear of everything else, everyone's opinions, everyone's future, everyone's ideas, everything else, it grows. But the opposite is also true. When my fear of God grows, my fear of everything and everyone else shrinks. Listen, when I fear God more than anything else, I'm not scared of what you think of me. I'm not scared of what you say of me. I'm not scared of anything else because my fear of God is what dictates and controls my life. Whatever I fear most will control me. And I wanna fear God more than I fear anything else. The, the great problem for the Israelites wasn't that they were afraid of Pharaoh or that they were afraid of the people of the land. That's normal. It's that they weren't afraid of God. They did not fear God. And that ended up controlling them to want to go back to slavery. So God reacts to this and God ultimately wants to bring an end to these people. Moses cries out and says, Lord, won't you forgive them? And that's how we'll close here in verse 20 of chapter 14. The Lord replies to Moses, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and signs have performed in Egypt in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. And the two things I want to hold out to you in the closing of this text is simply this, that God looks at the Israelites and says, I've forgiven them. I have. I've forgiven their sins. They're right before me. So this is good news this morning, that unchecked fear, that unbridled fear in our life will not rob you of your salvation. If you're a person who's prone to fear, your fear is always elevated. It's always up there. You're always anxious and worried. That won't rob you of your salvation. That was made secure in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins and for your salvation. But I do want you to notice in the text, God says, I've forgiven them. And yet, really what he says is no one over the age of 20 gets to come into the promised land. 
Every one of them will die in the desert and then I'll bring the next generation in. See, unchecked fear will not rob you of your salvation, but unchecked fear will rob you of the future God has planned for you. And that's not something I want for my life. My salvation is secure, but I also want to step into the future that God has planned for me. I want to step into the plans and the purposes that he has created for me. And I don't want fear to hold me back from that. And yet for all of us, there's this anxiousness, there's this worry, concern, and fear that rises in our lives. And if we want to manage that and deal with that and move forward through that obstacle by faith, I think there's five things we can do this morning. I want to offer you in closing five next steps for the anxious heart. If I've been speaking to you this morning, you go, I'm the anxious one. I'm the fearful one. I'm the one who's worried and concerned and always worked up about what happens next. Let me give you five next steps. Number one, confess your fear through prayer. Tell God about it. He already knows. But something powerful happens when you tell God what he already knows. He starts to work by his spirit in your heart and frees you from the fear you have. Confess it to God. Number two, starve your fear through limiting. What does limiting mean? It means limiting yourself for the people or the areas that stir up your fear. So if there are people in your life, maybe in your family, maybe at your work, and every time you talk to them, you leave them just kind of worked up and anxious and afraid about things, it might be time to step back from that relationship. It might be time to move away from the people who constantly get you worked up about everything. If you have people you follow online and every time you see their posts, you're angry and you're mad and you're worked up and you are fearful for the future, it might be time to unfollow them. If there's a particular cable news channel and Pick your poison of whatever you want that you follow. And every time you watch it, you're just fearful and anxious for what comes next in this country. It may be time to save yourself some money and cut the cable. That's what it may be time for. We limit ourselves. We limit ourselves to the things that just unnecessarily stir up fear. Not because we don't want to be aware, but because we don't want to be a people who just give ourselves over to fear. Number three, we silence our fear through service. This might seem like an odd one to you, but I'm convinced that if you are serving, it is really hard to be worked up and anxious about your own thing. What what happens when we're anxious is we tend to withdraw. We tend to ruminate. We get in our own thoughts and our own head and we're just cycling over it. It is really hard for me to be serving someone else and thinking about what I'm anxious about at the same time. And so what do we want to do? We want to step into service. Serve your spouse, serve your kids, serve here at the church. If you're not serving in a ministry, go find a ministry to serve with. Sign up, see how you can help, be involved. Why? Because it gets you outside of yourself and it silences your fear. Number four, you want to feed your faith through fellowship. You want to get together with other Christians on Sundays, on the weekends, in a small group, in a Bible study, on a mission trip. You want to get involved with something. If you've been watching online and haven't come back yet and you're able to, be with us. There's something powerful that happens. Even in this service, I was standing down here. We were singing before the service and I just heard the voices of our church singing and it moved me deeply. There's something happens when we're in fellowship with other Christians. And then finally, we build our courage through reading. Reading what? Reading your Bible. Knowing the promises of God. Knowing God's past, his power, his presence, his promises. Knowing what he said to you, what he didn't say to you. The people who know their Bible, who know the promises of God, are a people who can walk with courage through any season and any situation. I'll close with this. I want you to imagine I'm in the lobby after the service and I'm shaking hands and someone walks up to me. And this is going to be strange, but go with me on this illustration for a second. I want you to imagine someone walks up to me and says, Brian, I want to introduce myself to you. Uh, My name's so-and-so and I am from the future. The future. I go, how far in the future are you from? He goes, Monday. Monday? You're from Monday. He goes, I'm from Monday. And I've come back in time to tell you one thing, Brian. The San Francisco 49ers win the Super Bowl today. (laughs) Oh, 
he tells me the final story, he tells me how it's going to end, and I just go, oh, oh man, thank you so, so much for sharing this with me. And then I, I leave here, and I go to watch the Super Bowl. I'm seated, I'm watching the game, and, and I'm thinking to myself about this conversation because the guy says to me, listen, here's how it goes, here's how the game ends. He goes, you don't need to worry because this ends well. And here's what would happen for me. I would watch the game this afternoon, and there would be ups and downs where the Niners score, the Chiefs score, there's a fumble, there's an interception, good play, bad play, all sorts of ups and downs. But I would watch with this steady peace, even if there were things that made me sad or happy, because I would know that I don't need to worry because this ends well. And listen, when it comes to the Super Bowl, I would need a time traveler from tomorrow to come tell me that. But when it comes to how my story ends and how your story ends, how the story of our church and this world ends, I don't need a time traveler because I've read the last page of my Bible. And I know exactly how this thing ends. And you can know that too. You don't have to worry because this ends well. We know exactly how the story ends. The story ends in resurrection. The story ends in victory. The story ends in triumph. And the story ends in Jesus. And so in the midst of everything else that's happening in your life, the ups and the downs and the goods and the bads, it's not that those things aren't real. It's just that you know how the story ends. So in the midst of it, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid because we know how our story ends. And our story, church, ends well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thanks once again that you are the God who meets us in the midst of our fear. And I pray for the man or woman in this room who is afraid, who's anxious, who's worked up over something very true and real in their life right now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet them in power. God, I pray that they would fear you above all else. I pray that they would remember your power, your plan, your promise, uh, and your presence with them. God, I pray that they would know you and trust you in the midst of this. May we be a church that fears you above all else. May we be a church that walks forward by faith. And may we be a church that sets our eyes on Jesus, who's coming back to make all things new. And so God, help us in the midst of our fear to be a people who love you and walk by faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.